children are dismissed. <laughs> they know it. They run away. Flee away. Run away from us, children. Turn your Bibles this morning to the book of Romans, chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, we're going to be in two different texts this morning, um, verses 3 and 4 of Romans 12, and then we're actually going to spend some time in the second half of the sermon in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 12 as well. We're in lesson four of an eight-week series on union with Christ and specifically how it applies to community, biblical community, how we do life with one another. Uh, an important truth, a, a critically foundational truth to the way Christians live and operate. Um, if we were going to just put it in purely uh, cultural terms, we would say it's this way. It's your identity, helping a Christian understand their identity and then how that impacts how they relate to other people around them. Uh, over the weeks, I hope you've begun to understand that it is this atmosphere that we live in and there are people in this world who spend a lot of time thinking about themselves, and, and I mean that in a good sense, in an introspection way. Who am I, and why do I do the things I do, and why have these things happened to me, and how do I work through life? And there's other people who spend very little time that way. They just kind of move along and do their own thing. Either category has a sense of identity. No matter if you're the kind of person that spends a lot of time thinking about who you are and how you think and how you operate or you're a person who spends very little time. We all have this sense of identity. And what is fascinating is this, um, psychotherapists and sociologists agree with the Bible in this regard, and that's this, you should intentionally think about who you are. It's actually really healthy to do as a practice. Some people are more prone to it than others, um, and there's errors on both sides. If you tend to be a person who, who tends to be very introspective, it can e become easy to become a navel gazer and just living in your own head. You've got to get out of that ditch. Uh, for folks on the other end of the spectrum, it can be that you just do things in life and you don't spend a lot of time thinking about it. You need to get out of that ditch. And so no matter what side you're on, it's not that one's better than the other, but the reality is we need to be proactively thinking about who we are, and specifically as Christians, you need to be thinking about how has God made you and he wired you and created you to be? What is your sense of self? Who are you? Is the way we would put it. And so in pressing forward um, in this series, one of the ways we realize who we are is almost like a radar that goes off, uh, a sonar. You send out an electric pulse of some kind, sound wave of some kind, and it hits an object and it comes back. And that's how you actually position yourself. The way you and I understand ourselves is in relation to sending out these kind of sonar pings. And uh, if you've ever, how many of you ever played the game Battleship? Yeah. Um, I used to play Battleship with my grandmother, and she was merciless. Um, one of the things I loved about her. One-on-one, um, -on -one, she had no problem beating me. Uh, but then if we ever played Uno or something as a family, she'd always cheat and slide me draw fours under the table that I could use. But playing Battleship, right, you had you got to figure out where are you at, right, all the time. B2, A15 or 12, I think it goes up to 12, I think it's 12 and 12, uh, G4. And you're, you're finding your location, well, identity is a little bit that way. You find your identity by understanding your relationship to others. This is why you'll think of yourself as a mother, a father, a single, a married, uh, a student, a worker, retired. You're actually 
putting your, fixing your position in relation to other things around you, events, people, places, uh, relational connections. It's the same way with your identity as a Christian. You're trying to find out who am I really. One of the ones that I think most Christians struggle with is you, um, when you think of Jesus and you think of yourself in relation to Jesus, just curious, um, how many of you ever struggle with being really discouraged about how unholy you are when you think about how holy Jesus is? In other words, when you ping, you send out that center ping, you feel very far away from Jesus. Yeah. And there's some truth to that, right? I mean, he is holy. But do you think that that ever bleeds into your sense of your relational connection with him? I think so. And so it, it's hard sometimes to wrap our minds around as his children. We are as near to him as you can get. But in our holiness, we feel at times very far from him, don't we? And one can overlap the other. I was actually thinking of it this morning. I was looking out my office window uh, over there, and I watched when Sarah Cummins showed up. And I don't know how, how tall Sarah is. She's definitely, well, most people are taller than me. But um, she's definitely taller than me. Yeah, so I don't know if she's six foot or not. And she's got these two tiny little boys, right? And just watching her walk in with the little boys. And I was just laughing to myself because now both my sons are taller than me. And I remember when they were much shorter than me. And they were as close to their mama as you could get. I mean, it's like mom duck and the little ducklings going right in. And, and, and we all know, though, she's what, maybe 10 years away from them being as tall as mom, if not taller. And they'll hit the age when uh, they'll go through the phase where mom and dad are heroes to uh, you're like my best friend to I still really need you as mommy or daddy, but I don't want to be seen in public with you, <laughs> right? And there's this, this contrast of height and distance and yet relational proximity I think there's just a lot of complexity to it, and that's part of the reason we're doing this series. And one of the ways you can send out those sonar pings to help you understand who you are in Christ is as you relate to other Christians, community. And so that's why part of the reason we're doing this, uh, this study. Uh, it's not just an academic exercise for me. And so this week, we, we want to um, think about how we go from just being a me to a we and how it functions in community in, in itself. And so let me maybe introduce it this way. Um, now it's not going to want to work. I'm afraid my computer might be frozen. I see this, this spinning wheel of death. Yeah, it's not going to help me out here. That's going to be bad. Let's try this. You guys are going to get to see a whole thing here. But that's okay. No, I don't want to report it. I just want to do it, right? There we go. Ah, that was quicker fix than I thought. I almost looked like Tyler up here. See how smooth I was? That was amazing. What's my identity? I'm a Prezi fixer, right? So here we go. Um, now it doesn't want to work again. This is amazing. There we go. Okay, we're just going to do it this way. Okay, so you see these kind of memes on the left-hand side. What, that bottom one might be harder to read than I realize, it says your vibe attracts your tribe, right? Or find your tribe, love them hard. This has kind of become a, a more common phrase of who's your tribe. And you, 
get together with people that are a lot like you. Let me ask you this question. What, are the, what is this kind of thinking getting at? When it's trying to describe community, what is this idea that they're trying to get at Whether they're saying find your tribe or your vibe attracts your tribe? Um, dance with the people that, that you like to be with. What are, what is these, this is the world's way of thinking. It's the culture's way of thinking. I'm not completely shooting holes in it. I just want you to know that's not necessarily a Christian way of thinking either, though. Uh, so what is the world getting at when it's throwing those kinds of ideas out at us? And remember, this is not your typical Sunday morning series, so I will look for some answers, and you're going to help me out. Tyler gets the first chocolate bar at the end of the service. Yeah, Tyler. Spend time with people that are just like you. Yeah, spend time with people that are just like you, right? Um, enjoy that. Good, good. If we unpack that even, can we unpack that anymore? Anybody else have any ideas? Dalton. Yes, not just people like you, but only people that are like you. Do, do they mean that in every possible way? No, usually it's in whatever matters the most to you, right? Or what you enjoy the most. It, it, it's a thinking that says this, the people that I'm closest with are those that have similar hobbies, interests, careers, etc. I'm closer to these people than my own blood family. It's an idea that says this, part of happiness in life is having a sense of belonging, right? So keep looking for people that are just like this. It's, it's fascinating, and again, because we all have different hobbies, different interests, different things. One of the things, uh, when I was finishing seminary, there was a couple guys that were in my dorm. I was supervisor of a guy's dorm, so I don't know. I, had, I, I don't even remember how many. It was, it was somewhere between 50 and 70 guys um, in this dorm that I was responsible for. Uh, I look back now, I was like, why did I ever sign up for that? Uh, let, me, let me play dorm dad to a bunch of 18 to 22-year-olds. Uh, I have some great stories. But I had a couple guys in my dorm, they were into something called LARPing. You even know what LARPing is? Live action role play. I'm like, hmm. I look out my apartment window one day, and there's, there's these guys from my dorm dressed up like they're straight out of The Hobbit. But they're homemade costumes. I'm not trying to be mean here, but, but imagine the, the world's worst Halloween-made costume with foam swords and arrows. And they're running around hitting each other, pretending live-action role-play. Strangest thing I've ever seen in my life. I'm like, that's just weird. They loved it. They loved it. I'm like, okay. And, and what was interesting is the more they were into it, it was a little bit offbeat for the sm very small Christian college we were at. Like... You suddenly notice they ate breakfast, lunch, and dinner together. It's the only people they ever spent time with because a sense of rejection from others drove them even closer to one another. So suddenly people that would never be otherwise friends, they're all bonded around LARPing, right? Well, let me ask you, what are some common centerpieces of tribes or communities in our current culture? Some ways that it just tends to pull people together. What are some of these commonalities, these hobbies, these ideas, whatever, that this is who I'm really connected with? I'm tighter with these people than almost anyone else. What are some of those in our culture today? Eric. Football. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Whose team are you on? Whose team do you root for? It's, it's crazy, right? It's, it's particularly particularly in the southeast. Like It's a huge, huge deal. But it's all over the nation. But down here, man, having lived Midwest, Northeast, it's on a next level down here. But yes, football. What are some others? These are good. Laura. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yes. Help me out. Julie. Uh, video games. 
ooh, you don't talk anymore. <laughs> no, absolutely, yeah, video games, and whether it's online video games, chat communities that way, right? There's, there's major ones out there. I know the, one of the big ones for a lot of guys is Call of Duty uh, is, is a huge one, but there's lots of other ones. So video games, football, what are some others? Brenda? Pop. <laughs> All right, now look. Now let's, yeah, let me explain something. When I meddle, okay. You meddle, no bueno, right? So no, I'm just I'm kidding. Yeah, politics for sure, for sure. Marsha, did I see your hand? Music, absolutely. Um, this, these are the genre music I like. This is the group of music. If you like bluegrass, you got to go to Bill's Pickin' Parlor. I think it's Friday nights as they have, um, they have like free like sessions. People sit in. That's one that I know of. It's like people you wouldn't otherwise know are into bluegrass. They're all show up and they're into bluegrass. It's, it's cool, right? Um, yeah. Car... Yes, because those are smart and beautiful people that are car people. Yes, absolutely, yeah. Um, I belong to a couple of Facebook groups that are car, it's just car guys. We have these connections, Tyler. Yeah, definitely. Some, some really good ones and some one percenters, right? right? Um, and, and so there's all kinds of ways that we bond. What I want you to understand is our culture is declaring we believe you need a sense of belonging. Find a group, belong to it, be connected with it. This is what matters. What's fascinating about this, though, is I believe that the same cultural idea has, has filtered into Christians. And the question is, what is absent in all of these? And, and does it really matter? <laughs> If we are in Christ, how should we approach these? And again, I'm not saying any of them are evil. I'm not saying any of them are wrong. I am saying this. Church and community with other believers is radically different from all of those other ones. For some very specific reasons. And we need to understand that. What if this desire for belonging to a group that's been made even more evident in recent years, actually is a reflection of the way God made us. In Genesis, we find Adam, and God has made Adam, and then he looks at Adam, and he doesn't say it's good yet, because Adam is alone, and so what God creates for Adam is community. When he creates the world and he structures this world, he creates communities, um, whether it's the covenant community of Israel or the current covenant community of the church, whether it's a government community. So there's nations, there's people groups. Did you know in the eternity future there will still exist nations? There will, because they will come and bring offerings to Christ. And so there's always going to exist subsets, communities around us. And so as we understand union with Christ, we will understand it as we kind of sonar ping who we are in Christ as we think about, as we interrelate to one another. And so I've been given us a definition. Here's one with some blanks to fill in this week. I gave you different blanks last week. Um, I didn't give you a handout this week, so you can do this mentally, right? Uh, and so there's a blank here. How do you fill this in union with does anybody know what that blank is? Christ. You know, with Christ is the spiritual reality that a believer is in Christ. Christ is in them, and it's the controlling reality of every relationship in their lives is to be Christ coming out of them. Can I just say to you that I think that most of what the tribes today don't have is Christ. It's not centered on Christ. And again, 
being a car guy or a music guy or, or whatever, wood, woodworking, I, I don't care what it is, none of those, none of those can ultimately fulfill as God has designed us to operate. I'm not saying you should resign from them. I'm not saying they're bad. I'm not saying they're evil. I am saying this, church is distinctly different in a community with other Christians is supposed to be distinctly different. And at the centerpiece, it's supposed to be because Christ is there. Christ is in you and Christ is in me. And how do we think through this? And so the big idea for this week as we'll press forward in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians is we need to learn to see other believers, other Christians, through lenses of our and their union with Christ. I need to live in the truth that I am in Christ and Christ is in me, and so are you. Christ is in you, Christ is coming out of you. And this is going to give us a unique connection like nothing else. And it's by God's design that it operates that way. So if you're in Romans chapter 12, uh, I'm going to read from verse 1 down through verse 5, but we're going to focus our attention primarily this morning in verses 3 and 3 through 5. Paul writes this, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual, or as we saw and were reminded last week, your reasonable or your normal worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by grace, the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Well, what are some ways we can understand this? Well, we're going to do this in a couple parts. Part one is going to be life in a body. Part one, I'm going to talk about obstacles to that. Uh, there's two primary obstacles to our thinking and our behavior to doing life in a body, and then we're going to talk about life in the body, part two. So we're kind of going to bookend around the errors that we struggle with. We need others because we need Jesus, and Jesus is coming out of them for and to us, is what Paul is saying here. Because Jesus is in them, and we need him, we need them. You know, it's interesting when Jesus was picking his disciples who he chose. Uh, two of the guys he chose were a tax collector and a zealot. Zealots were political assassins. As a group, they had chosen to kill Jews that were sellouts to the Roman Empire. And so they carried along, they carried these knives, and they would commit assassinations. They were a terrible political extremist group. They were domestic terrorists of their day. And so there's no one they hated more than Jews that were working for the Romans, i.e. somebody like a tax collector. Somebody who had made it their mission in life that I'm going to give up my cultural identity, I'm going to give up my religious identity as a Jew, uh, and I'm going to live for the things of this world. I'm going to live for money. And the way I'm going to live for money is I'm going to charge other Jews the money that they need to pay to Rome, and I'm going to tack onto that my own uh, pay, my own salary, my own income. And so I'm going to take advantage of people, and I've got these Roman guards around me to protect me. I could throw you in prison if I want to. I have immense power over you. And so these are the guys the zealots hate the most. And when Jesus goes around picking his disciples, he picks a zealot and a tax collector as two of them. He chose people that were just radically different from one another. He chooses fishermen on one hand and a physician on the other. 
You, you, all, you can't get more different career-wise, academic-wise, religious training-wise than the group of men that Jesus threw together, that he put together. Uh, he chooses guys that are not well-respected, and he chooses other guys that would be very well-known in their community. The unifying bond for all of these men was one thing, Jesus. He didn't look for people that would naturally get along. He didn't look for people that would naturally be friends, that would love to spend time together. He picked people from every walk of life. He made them his core disciples. He doesn't just stop there. Every extreme worship moment that happens in the Gospels, except for the centurion, is from women. Jesus routinely is praising the faith of women. Jesus is routinely praising uh, the, the service of women. It is women who give the first testimony to the resurrection in a culture that despises women. And so Jesus chooses, uh, he chooses 12 men that are going to become apostles. Obviously, Judas is the sellout, is the betrayer. So 11 faithful men to be apostles. He surrounds himself with incredibly trustworthy women. Everybody else other than John is terrified of his crucifixion, but women are there. Jesus is demonstrating something about the kind of people he picks to follow him. He doesn't pace his choice on people that naturally all get together anyway. He didn't show up at the wedding of Cana and say, you're now my tribe because all of you clearly are relationally connected or friendship connected. You all already enjoy being together. This is my tribe. Now we'll go tell everybody else. Instead, he went out. It's like the highways and byways pulling people from every walk of life because it demonstrates the one unifying glue, the super glue of God's community is Jesus. It's not all the other ways that we find commonality with one another. Paul tells us that as we start thinking about how we do life in the church body, in the book of Romans, he says, think of it like a body. If there's any hope for a body to work together, there has to be a sense of mutual appreciation, a valuing of one another. Mutual appreciation flourishes the most when we realize we need each other. If I don't need you, if I don't really need, sometimes it can be hard to be grateful for someone. Let's put it this way. What if there's a person in this planet, this is a dangerous mental exercise, but they really annoy you? I mean, they... They are an irritant to you. Now, I have a very low irritation threshold because I have a very high pride threshold. I don't like it when people block my driveway. We've got neighbors that always, they don't park in their driveways. They love to park behind my driveway. I don't know why they do this. And I'm like, oh, you irritate me. It's a very small thing. It irritates me. It irritates me if people don't cut their grass. It irritates me when people get in grocery line and they have like 93 things and then they want to wait and leave the line while they go remember two more things. I'm like, oh, they irritate me. I have irritations because I have a problem, right? Because I'm proud. So think of somebody that really irritates you. They bug you. It's hard to be around them, right? You don't want to be around them. You find ways to not be around them. 
But what if you really needed that person? What if they irritate you and you need them? Like, what, what, if, what if it was somebody that, like, you were in a restaurant and they're, like, one of those people that, that are so loud in the restaurant, you, you almost can't even, it's like, it'd be like a Texas Roadhouse, which the music is, like, so loud all the time, right? But then there's somebody three tables over and they're even louder than the music. And you're like, oh, you've got to be kidding me. Like, quiet down over there, please. You're just annoying me. You're irritating me. And then all of a sudden you start choking. And that person comes up and gives you the Heimlich. How, what do you think happens to your irritation level? The truth is this. When we start living in the reality that we need somebody, our irritation does start to diminish. We start to live in a humble reality that I can't exist rightly without this other person. What Paul is saying by giving us this illustration of the body is you need other Christians. By the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, and that means to live in reality. He's popping our fantasy bubble. What fantasy bubble is he popping? The fact that you can do life on your own. Each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned, for as in one body we have many members, the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. How does the body metaphor from Paul drive us to a perspective of need? Well, let me ask you this. What do we call somebody who's missing a hand or an arm or a leg? They're an amputee, right? Maybe they're born even without. We have other words that describe folks that seem less than whole physically. We call them disabled. We say that they are handicapped. We are prone to think of them as being less than a whole person, whether it's deafness or blindness or an inability to walk or the use of an arm or a leg or even the loss of a limb or an organ. I actually think that it's wonderful to consider that this series will help us to not think of disabled or handicapped people as less than, but to recognize the greatest reality about them is are they in Christ or not. And God has made them wonderfully and fearfully. He has created them. And if they're a believer, their identity is not found in their physical being, but in Christ. But the illustration still remains. And the illustration is this. What happens when a body is missing a part of it? It's simply not going to operate the same way. It's not going to function with the same strength, the same power, the same ability. In 1990, the Americans with Disabilities Act was passed. It prevents discrimination based on disabilities. Now, what we are mostly familiar with that are requirements of things like uh, slopes on our sidewalk so that someone with a wheelchair could get in, or elevator access or ramp access to buildings and businesses, to the presence of handicapped bathroom stalls so that someone who is handicapped has enough space to actually be able to use restroom facilities. What's fascinating is that the church circles I was in at the time when this was passed was the reaction to it was fascinating. And so the reaction was not one of embracing this, but actually resistance to it. 
Because here you had all these built churches or churches that were even in construction phases. And suddenly it meant to be aligned with the American with Disabilities Act, you had to provide equal access to a handicapped person as a person that was not handicapped. And so if they can't have that access, then they can't function. We built a two-story office building over here. And do you know what? It, the upstairs cannot be used for classroom space ever because of the American with Disabilities Act. We'd have had to have put in a multiple tens of thousands of dollars elevator to use any of the upstairs space as, as class space. We can use it as offices as long as we provide same office space downstairs. Now, I wasn't here when they built that building, so this is not a reference to this church's past, but way back in 1990, I, the church I was in was so upset because they were in a building program, and they were going to have to put an elevator for the platform of the building. And it was like the greatest conspiracy theory ever. This is the American, the ACA, the American with Disabilities Act, or ADA. It's intended just to destroy churches. This is going to become the liberals' way of suing churches. This is going to be the liberals' way of shutting organizations down. I can't believe we're going to have to do this. I can't believe we're going to have to function this way. I remember even at the time, I mean, I wasn't very old, but I was stunned by that reaction. As though providing the ability for someone who is handicapped to have full functionality was wrong. I'll be honest with you. Now at 48, I believe those are the kind of things the church should be at the forefront of. <laughs> Not have to be drugged to it. It should be a mindset that God has created everyone fearfully and wonderfully. And as much as lies within us, we should provide grace and care. There was lawsuits that were involved, and the ADA took a long time to force through. Why? Why would our culture so push against it for the same reason that there's a declining number of children born with Down syndrome every single year because they are the highest aborted child or genetic chromosomal failure out there? Nations that mandate the use of prenatal screening, primarily amniocentesis, there are nations who mandate it, they have the lowest numbers of Down syndrome children because it's easier just to kill them. We have a world that doesn't do brokenness well, does it? We have a world that looks at people and it judges them and values them on their physical or mental capabilities as having worth or value or not. We look at them, why? Because we have a mindset that something that's less than whole, that's less than perfect is somehow bad or wrong. We have this innate sense that something's wrong. Listen, we live in a sin-fallen world, and so there will always be folks among us with disabilities and handicaps, and we need to look upon them with love and understand they're created the image of God, and they have value, and they have worth, and we as believers should love them the most. But here's the problem. Paul's illustration still stands. And I've never yet met someone with a handicap that if you ask them, they would be willing to give up their handicap for a sense of wholeness. And even the folks that have accused them and overcome them. What happens, though, if a church is considered a body, if it has members of its body who refuse to function, who by their own volitional choice Say, I won't do. I won't relate. I won't connect. Um, anytime, I, I, anytime I lift weights, um, 
my left arm, by the time I'm done, I literally can't feel it. Last time you went to the dentist, you had, some of you, you know, if you went to the dentist, you had Novocaine, uh, right, and you can't feel your mouth, you know, your tongue's hanging out there, you try not to bite it, it's completely numb. My left arm, completely numb, cannot feel it because of nerve damage in my neck from years ago. It, it, like, it's non-functional for multiple minutes. It's just the way it is. It's less than whole. It, it's non-functional, it's non-operational, it's no good. What happens if the church of Christ, what happens if the body of Christ functions less than whole? I think a lot of things happen. I think other organizations step in to do what the church is supposed to be doing. I think people tend to look for care and comfort outside of what God's design method is. What happens if a church... Um, we'll just we'll pick on this one. What happens if a church doesn't actually teach and train people? That's, isn't that the purpose? Ephesians chapter 4, God has given you pastors and teachers to train you to do the work of the ministry. That's, that's our job. It's not actually my job to do the work of the ministry. It's to teach you how to do the work of the ministry. Now, what's ironic about that, or what's interesting about that, is one of the ways you train people to do the work of the ministry is you do ministry, right? You, the example. So I understand it's not, oh, that means I get to hide away in my office to study a week and do nothing. Please. But it's to train. What happens if a church doesn't train? Genuine Christians are going to look for it somewhere, aren't they? They're going to find it somewhere. What happens if a church doesn't serve one another? What happens if people are in desperate need of care, soul care, physical care? They're going to find it somewhere. We need to learn to see others in such a way that recognizes I need Jesus and Jesus is in them. I need to be connected with them so I can see Jesus and experience Jesus coming out of them. It's very core. This is what Paul is saying. So why don't we do that? What keeps us from living this way? I think there's two primary barriers that happen in our life. We can point it down. The first one is the pride of life. And you can actually see it back here in your task. Excuse me, in your text. He says it this way in 12.3a, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. It's an arrogant view of life. So let me ask this. <laughs> Where are some ways that we could actually see this play out in the life of a church, in a church community? How could, what are some ways that pride could come out that means that we're not connected or serving or loving one another the way God calls us to. What are some ways that, that practically, maybe some ways we think or the things we do, choices we make, that we could actually see the pride, flesh put on the bones of that pride? How does pride manifest in such a way that prevents us from being connected with, serving, or loving other people the way God calls us to? How could pride actually get in the way of that? Legalism. Legalism. You are also now on the list of people that cannot give you answers. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. Because at its core, legalism says, I can achieve a standard and I'm better than you. It's not about grace. It's not about what we've received from Christ. I now have an objective list that I can tick off. I'm better than you. I'm never going to be connected with people like this. Though. At the core, I'm a Pharisee. Yeah, absolutely. What are some other ways? This is, that was really good. June. Yeah, 
Yeah, absolutely. I don't get to do the job I want to do. I don't get to do the job I know I would do better at. I don't get to, job, get to do the job I'd love to do. I'm not getting to be used the way I'd want to be used. Good. Yeah, these are, these are really good. What are some other ways? Peter. And it's usually, I don't know, my experience is usually that's a job. What Peter was saying was, I'm not going to do it because somebody else will do it. My experience is usually that's a job I don't want to do, or it feels like it's going to cost me too much. It's just not worth my time, my energy, my effort. Even if God is calling me to do that, giving me that opportunity. Yeah, there's a job that's somehow beneath me, or I assume somebody else will do it, somebody else will take care of it, so I don't have to do that. Because every ministry is costly. Every ministry. I've yet to find one that doesn't cost. And so it's a choice I don't want to pay that price for whatever reason. What, any other ways? How about I, I deserve to be listened to because I'm a top contributor. And I don't mean money, but I just mean I'm core, so I deserve to be listened to. It should be my way. Um, the church doesn't need me. I'm not good enough to do anything is kind of this false humility. I don't like the way that's being done. And I know I could do it better, so I'm not willing to help with that. Paul places this idea of all of us being in the body in the greater context of the verses that we looked at just last week. We can safely say that in Rome, and I think this is still around today, that a resistance to sacrifice lies at the core of it. For there to be healthy community, there must be people that are sacrificially being a part of it. I, but there comes a point when I don't want to sacrifice my body, and I don't want to think of it as my reasonable worship. What does he say again in verse 1? I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice that's bloody, and it's ugly, and it's gory, and it's costly. Do this that's holy and acceptable to God, which is your normal worship. We don't want to do that. We don't want it to cost us. I'm willing to serve or to be or to relate to people only in the way that I want to. Pride of life lies as one of the two core obstacles to living out body life appropriately. There's a second one, and it's the peculiarity of the church. The key essence of unity here, the body image here, is unity amidst diversity. It's all kinds of parts working together, very different parts. And so when we think about the members of the body, it's, it's your eyes and your hands and your heart and your lungs. And these are very, very different, but they need one another in order to function rightly. What's fascinating about all these other groups, that, and we threw out some of them, so I'll, I'll come back to some of them, right? So if you have a, um, a gaming group or a motorcycle group, Almost any other little tribe out there you can find, you can find a Christian version of it, can't you? So here's your Christian motorcycle club. Here's your Christian gaming group. Here's your Christian LARPing club. Right? It's, it's like we're going to slap Jesus. It's our hobby plus Jesus. And it's a mindset and a thinking. And again, I'm not trashing being involved in any of that as long as you rightly understand None of that was ever designed by God to replace this. Now, here's what's hard as a pastor to say that. Because I was a layperson longer than I've been a pastor. 
it's easy for people to assume Steve believes and says that because it serves Steve's existence. I actually don't come and believe and say that because it serves me, because it's what Jesus is pointing to. So I think you can have your Christian LARPing club or gaming club. Like, fine. As long as you understand, you've taken Jesus in the group you don't want to be a part of is all the same people that like the same things you do. That's what makes it comfortable for you. Fine. Understand this. That's not the body of Christ. So don't treat it like it is. Enjoy it. Be with them. Hang out. I don't care. Like, fine. But it didn't replace the body because what you've taken out of it is the diversity. You've actually added extra commonality to it. Do you think that ever happens even in the, inside the four walls of a church? It does when the only people you want to spend time with are other believers, even in your church, that are just like you. The key essence of it, the peculiarity of the church is unity amidst diversity. And, and we'll look at this even in the coming weeks. Um, but when we say things like multi-ethnic, multicultural, multi-socioeconomic, it's because God wants to reflect his glory in diversity because the Trinity is unity amidst diversity. It reflects God. You have Father, Son, and Spirit. The Father takes on certain roles. The Son takes on certain roles. The Spirit takes on certain roles. The, God is one, though. He's three in one. There is no greater image of unity amidst diversity than the Trinity, the church, God's community. Think of it this way. Jesus is the head of the church. We are the body. We are to reflect that same reality. And so there's a peculiarity to the church that's hard for us to overcome to be part of the body. Physician turned theologian, Martin Lloyd-Jones, he contrasts this with this image. He said, the church is not, when you think unity among diversity, don't think, up, think of a train. And he meant this long locomotive train with all its individual cars. And if you get stuck in Irma or wherever watching the train go by, there's never a time a train go by, goes by that I don't count the cars. My dad drove that into me when I was a little boy. He worked for General Motors, used to have a locomotive division where they built trains. My dad worked at the factory. They repaired trains. He was a train guy. I still, to this day, in one of my boxes somewhere, I have quarters that my dad laid out on the train tracks for the train to run over that are flattened out that he gave to us as his kids. Like, I still have these things. If I think about it long enough, I can smell my dad's work clothes. They smelled like machinist oil because it was a machine shop. Trains, so trains. And so what Martin Lloyd-Jones is saying is when we think unity, when you think of a train, you can say, oh, there's the train. But the train is made up of all these different cars. You've got the engine, right? You've got the tender on an old locomotive. Uh, you've got all these individual cars. You can have carriage cars, passenger cars, um, cargo cars. You have a caboose on the end of it. You have oil cars. It's all these, and so we think train, and it's all these individual parts. That is not at all what the church is supposed to be like. That's not the illustration he uses. He uses it as a one whole. When you think about and talk about your body, if you go to the doctor and says, is anything aching you? You don't say, yeah, it's the arm. It's my arm. It's part of who you are. Somebody that loses an appendage, an amputee, they will have ghost feelings. Their body still thinks it's there because of the nerves. 
even if it's not. In the body, you have a vital relationship, an organic unity, which means that there's a living connection between the parts. It's not a kind of soldiering or trying on, but an inner unity. Paul suggested this way in Ephesians 4.16, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. In other words, my growth becomes your growth. Your growth becomes my growth. Your sorrows become my sorrows. And your joys become my joys. Your victories become my victories. Your losses become my losses. Our pride and the peculiar nature of the church make understanding and applying these truths about union with Christ high hurdles for us to overcome. Thinking that we need each other. I mean need each other. and thinking that others need us becomes less and less something that I just need to put on and more and more reality I need to live out. It's hard for us, and so for that we can go to the second text in, second, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. So go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, living in a body part 2. It's important that we understand that while union with Christ has everything to do with our salvation, has everything to do with our personal journey of sanctification, this never happens in isolation. We learned that we're personally united with Christ when we looked at in Romans chapter 6, and we're united with Christ in two key ways. I'm united with Jesus in his death, and I'm united with Jesus in his resurrection. Paul presses this reality, though, beyond us as individuals and into communities. There's a number of ways the church is described in, uh, throughout the New Testament. It's called a bride, the bride of Christ in Ephesians 5. It's called a field in 1 Corinthians 3. You are like a field that is being sown. It's called a building in Ephesians chapter 2, just to name a few. However, Paul calls it a body in Romans and in Corinthians. Why do you think that is? Because Paul wants you to live in the reality. You are not just union with Christ. You are united with others. How do we press into that? Well, Corinthians, I think, actually helps us by going back to this obstacle of pride. 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 13, he says this, just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and are all made to drink of one Spirit. Do you notice that Paul identifies the differences that they struggle with in acting like a body? <laughs> no, look at what he highlights. Jews or Greeks, he highlights these cultural significant differences. Uh, Billy Graham said this. I don't remember the date at this point. And it's been said many, many times since then. Barna has done studies. It's like the largest independent research group that studies churches and religious culture in the United States, and they've backed this up. And here's the statement. Sunday morning is the most segregated hour of the week. It's true, isn't it? It's true. We live in a world that wants to segregate over race, even if you're not overtly racist, 
out of comfortability. Um, I'll throw one out there if you just process through in this moment. You don't get to, don't raise your hand, don't respond verbally, right? What if once or twice a year, or three or four times a year, I traded pulpits with some local pastors? And so what if one Sunday I, tra I traded pulpits and there was an African-American pastor who came and preached? And what if I, and I went and preached at his church, and what if there's another Sunday I traded pulpits and it's a Korean pastor or a Chinese pastor or a Hispanic pastor? What if it was really hard for you that day because it was hard for you that you had to sit almost on the edge of your seat and lean forward to strain to listen because English is their second language or maybe even their third or fourth language? It was really hard, and you're like, ah, oh, man, that was really hard. Or, or if we traded music leaders. I'm like, I, I, don't know, I don't know how into that kind of music I am. What if the way we do church at its very core sometimes is a reflection of exactly what Paul is preaching against here? That's a rhetorical question because the answer, I think, is we are. It's hard to get past, isn't it? It's not like you woke up this morning and said, let me go to the church that makes me most comfortable, right? We naturally have these kinds of drifts. And so he says, neither Jew nor Greek. And so there's cultural, racial implications there. Slaves are free. There's a massive socioeconomic difference that's going on there. Just unbelievable stature in community, as well as financial ability, education. All were made to drink of one spirit. I think it's interesting because what Paul is identifying is the very things that we would tend to find the most pride in and then push against other things. The things that we say, I take great ownership of, he's saying Jesus is transcending them. It's like he's saying... First and foremost, it's not that you are a Jew or a Greek. I'm not, I'm not eliminating those, those distinctives, but that's not primarily who you are. You're not primarily slave or free. You are in Christ, and Christ is in you. And because you're in Christ and Christ is in you, you are connected to one another who are just like you. You're like, but they're not like me at all. They are in the most important way. Jesus Why is it important, you get to answer here, why is it important for you and me to receive and to do ministry with people of a different culture, race, financial standing, or academic place? Why is it important for you to receive and to do ministry with people that are very different from you in any of those areas? Why is that important? Brenda? Okay. Okay, so building an, an understanding and a loving empathy with people that are very different from you by understanding the hardships and difficulties of life will help to make you more like Jesus. Yeah, I think that's wonderful. Absolutely. That's why the woman at the well is shocked that Jesus shows up there. That's why Simon the Pharisee is shocked that Jesus has time for this prostitute. Jesus had no problem doing life and ministry with people very different from a 33-year-old Jewish carpenter. 
Yeah, I think it absolutely makes us more like Jesus. Good. What are some other? Why else is it important? Marsha? Yeah, because Jesus made all of us. <laughs> and so the more we spend time with people who we think are very different from us, the more we become attuned to actually the commonalities and the most important ones, Jesus, but also just the struggles and the difficulties of life. The biggest things in life that matter the most were the same. Absolutely. That's really good. Really good. What are some other reasons? Dalton. Absolutely. As we receive ministry for them, as we see their interactions, we absolutely grow and we flourish. Let me ask you this way. Do you think, like uh, my kids, we live in a great school district, so they have the Kate Center. Uh, Daniel teaches at the same kind of thing over in Lexington. So you can learn to be a welder, car mechanic, firefighter. You can graduate from the, car, from the firefighting academy here. They hire you straight into the Lexington uh, or Richland County Fire Departments. I mean, you're fully qualified. Do you think you learn certain skills there that you would be different than the kind of skills you learn in higher academics, college, whatever. Obviously, which ones are more important? Neither. They just aren't, right? But do you think that I can learn things from people that haven't spent their life in higher academics? You bet I can. You bet I can. We learn and we grow and we flourish as we are spending time with people that are not just like us. You want to talk about mentally stunted, life-stunted people? Find people that all they do is spend time with people just like them. Jesus didn't design us that way. He wants us to grow and flourish and to receive ministry and to give ministry, but then there's also peculiarity. Now look what he says at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it, and God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? No. Are all prophets? No. Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and yet I will show you a more excellent way. That's the last verse before you hit chapter 13. What is the more excellent way? Love. The very existence of spiritual gifts is to prove the peculiarity of the church to us. We need one another, and we are each needed for the body of Christ to exist. Spiritual gifts are, ex are direct expressions of Christ in you, coming out of you through the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is a Jewish carpenter, truly God, truly man, but for the world today to have any hope of seeing and experiencing Jesus, they need... To borrow Paul's language here, Jews and Greeks, slaves and free, from Galatians, men and women. They need, and by they, I mean we need to see Jesus. And God intends for us to see him. How? By putting him on display, by us being united with him individually and then united with one another. We need to learn to see others through lenses of ours and their union with Christ. Now, what can we do with this practically as we finish up? Well, sandwiched right in between pride and peculiarity in 1 Corinthians 12 is this wonderful verse. That there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. 
If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. If you are striving to maintain unity, if you are experiencing the joys and sorrows of life with one another, you are living out this reality. Interestingly enough, on the pre-session quiz that I gave you guys, one of the lowest scoring questions, one of the lowest scoring questions was, do you contribute to a strong community at CareBC? In other words, in your self-evaluation, the vast majority of you think you don't. Or you don't do a very good job at it. That's you. That's not me. That's you. Well, how can you do it? Because my hope would be at the end of even this sermon, your heart would be, man, I so want to be a part of that. This week, I'll just give you some. Celebrate or weep with somebody. Ask what victory or sorrow you can rejoice with them about or bear with them. Live in this reality. Most people do not go to other Christians looking for the answers of life. It's just looking for somebody to run with them. Not to fix everything. Into the world, into their world, which is just living out the reality that you are in one body. Who is your tribe? Who is your tribe? Look around, friends. You're among them. Write a note to someone. Send a text to someone. Have a coffee or lunch date to deepen connections. Go to the zoo, soda city, or a movie, or walk the dam with them. Ask someone what you can pray about for them. Ask someone to pray for you this week about something. In all of these, what you're expressing is you need to see Jesus in me coming out of me, and I need to experience Jesus in you coming out of you, because we are one body. We need to learn to see other believers through lenses of our and their union with Christ. I had so many meetings this week, literally meetings every single day. Some of those are pre-planned, and then I leave gaps, and Jesus this week filled in all those gaps. And I'm an introvert. I was people exhausted by Friday. <laughs> Just people exhausted. But as I looked back, as I finalized notes for my sermon, i got to be honest with you. I saw so much Jesus this week. I experienced so much Jesus this week. Yes, in my time of the word, yes, in singing, but from you folks. And I got to tell you, every week that you see and experience Jesus, that's a very good week. So I invite you to join me on the journey of living the reality that we are one, we are union with Christ. And he also has brought us into community to help us understand that better. Isn't that kind of God? I think that's so kind of God. I think it's so good of God. Father.